Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. So we couldn't even turn on the lights, you know. We couldn't make any noise and we felt in danger every single second of our lives. And sadly, these kind of situations are never shown in the TV series. Welcome to All the Wiser. I'm Kimmy Kolf. All the Wiser is a one-for-one podcast. For every inspiring interview you hear, we donate $2,000 to charities around the world. I believe in the power of storytelling to inspire us all to think differently about the world around us. So I've combed the country for some of the most jaw-dropping stories you have ever heard. People who have been to the brink and back, stories of survival against all odds, and whose lives have been changed in unthinkable ways. Before we get started, I want to encourage you to sign up for our newsletter at allthewiserpodcast.com. You will know every time we drop a new episode and discover inspiration from the things we are digging, including playlists, books, and binge-worthy podcasts. And finally, you will hear from me about what is going on in my heart and mind with pictures to bring it to life. Today's interview is with Juan Pablo Escobar. He is the son of Pablo Escobar, who at a time was responsible for trafficking 80% of drugs in the world. It is also estimated that he is tied to more than 3,000 deaths. Juan Pablo changed his name and identity as a teenager, and today you will hear me refer to him as Sebastian. We talk about the dichotomy of his life and father as his family's drug empire amassed billions of dollars, a young Juan Pablo remembers cheeseburgers being flown in and helicopters for his meals, and a father he experienced as loving and present. He also remembers being blindfolded as he moved to safe houses and hiding from law enforcement with no access to food and the requirement to not speak. Today, we talk about Narcos, his unimaginable childhood, his father's death, and the following decades spent in hiding with his mother and sister. I found him to be a man of great peace, forgiveness, and a living example of how our futures can be brighter than our past. Here's today's fascinating, heartwarming, and hopeful interview with Sebastian. Sebastian, welcome to All the Wiser. It's a pleasure to be here with you tonight. And I should say, I am here in Los Angeles, and you are in Buenos Aires, correct? Yes, Buenos Aires, Argentina. And it is, in fact, during a global pandemic, and we are both homeschooling seven-year-olds. Is that correct? Yes, yes, we are struggling with that. Exactly. Who would have thought? Who would have thought? 
Yeah. Well, thank you. And especially in spite of everything that is happening in the world for making the time to have this conversation today, which I'm really excited to share with our audience. Thank you for this opportunity. Sebastian, I like to, instead of introducing my guests, actually have them introduce themselves. How would you introduce yourself? Well, I'm just a regular guy. I had the opportunity to study architecture, industrial design, and I became a writer, a lecturer. And also, well, my family story is, is uh, around Pablo Escobar, my father. I went to exile and I've been living in Argentina for the past 26 years of my life. And I'm trying to use my father's story in a very responsible way just to invite others not to imitate him in any way. What is your earliest childhood memory? Well, I, I can say that, you know, I remember my childhood as, you know, I can separate like in two, two times. The first one perhaps was when we had the time to enjoy a normal family or at least what I thought it, it was a, a normal family you know, surrounded by my own father and mother and, you know, hanging around. And, and suddenly I just start uh, joining my father in his political career, visiting many, many poor neighborhoods in the Medellin area. And suddenly, you know, my father was appearing in the news and the Minister of Justice accusing him of being a, a drug dealer. And after that, my father disappeared. Suddenly, the Minister of Justice was killed because my father gave the order. So that was a, another beginning for me. So my father started all, all of this violence and we went to Panama. So my life was in danger since the, I was seven years old, the same age of my, my son, Juan Emilio, today. So... I can barely imagine how I managed to deal with all of that kind of situations. And, and it was also an opportunity for me and my father to start talking about who he really was, you know, and, and perhaps he, he took the first opportunity and he told me uh, when I was seven, uh, hey, son, I want you to know the truth and I am a bandit and this is what I do for a living. So this is how everything started anew childhood for me. I thank you for connecting the dot that your son is now seven, because I do think as a parent, when you had things that happened to you as a child, when you see your child at that age, it makes you certainly reflect because you realize how, in fact, young and fragile you were. And you have said at seven, your life was that of a criminal. And by association, you were responsible for the murders and you lived under everything that comes with that. And I also know today in reading your story and learning about you, so much of your life was these contradictions, the juxtaposition of these two men, which we will talk about within your father, but also your separate childhoods. And I read that your dad was afraid of roller coasters, which I found fascinating, but would take you to Disney World in Florida and would ride with you because he wanted to be that type of father for you and bring you joy. But at the same time, he would blindfold you when you were moving from safe house to safe house so you wouldn't become an informant and give up any information. 
Can you kind of paint the picture of those two different versions of your father and how you experienced them as a young boy? Well, you know, uh, since I was a child and knowing that my father was a bandit, of course, when you have uh, seven years old, you don't really imagine or realize that your own father was uh, in charge of perhaps the biggest criminal organization of the past century that brings another dimension to the problems you are living and experiencing. But, you know, as you mentioned, there are a lot of contradictions. And one of them was, you know, receiving good advices from my father's sides. And at the same time, uh, he wasn't giving me the right examples out of home. So I had to deal with those situations in, in many occasions and live in the contradiction because at the same time I was receiving exclusively love from his side. So it was very hard for me to judge him. And and I'm not talking that I was receiving gifts, you know, exclusively. I was receiving a lot of love and attention from him. And that gave me also the courage to find a way to speak to him and to let him know that I was against his violence. And so I started questioning him And let me give you an example. In in the year 1988, when we have terrorist attack from the Cali cartel, we almost died in that uh, point of our lives. My father started putting bombs all over the the country. So I I asked him to stop. And I I told him, look, it doesn't matter if I I am the guy who suffered a terrorist attack. That doesn't give me the permission to attack others. You know, but, you know, he was always full of excuses. And I'm curious, you said that he gave you sort of otherworldly advice as a father. What advice did he give you in spite of it being in contradiction to his actions? What was the advice he gave you as a young boy? Well, when you truly love your son, you will never wish for him something bad. So I think he was truly aware of the consequences of being a bandit and a, and a drug and involved in the drug trafficking business because he always encouraged me to study, you know, to go to the university, study what I wanted. And he told me, if you want to be a doctor, I just want to give you the best hospital in town. Uh, or if you want to be a hairdresser, well, you would have a saloon. So you just need to choose what you want to be in your life. And he was encouraging me, encouraging me all the time to not to follow him, just to choose my, my own path in life. I think so often in a father and son relationship, especially when you felt very loved and seen, you look up to your dad and you want to be like your dad. I've read that he did not have an expectation for you to follow in the path, for you to be the son that took over the cartel. Did you have that in you that I want to grow up and be like my dad or it's my duty as the son to take over one day? Well, that happened to me when exactly one second after I received the news that he was uh, dead, you know, and it, it took me 10 minutes to realize that that wasn't the, the, the real path that I wanted for me in my life. Because, you know, I reacted very violently and I said that I was going to kill uh, the ones who killed him, etc. So uh, most of the people in Colombia remembers me because of the threats, but not because uh, of the 10 minutes after that I, I grabbed the phone and I called the, the media again and I told them, look, I'm sorry, 
just because of what I said recently. I'm very sorry, and I will never do that, and I will never avenge my father's death. So I'm committed with peace, and this is what I want for my family. And this is exactly what I've been doing for the past 26 years of my life. So in my case, I, I can understand that most of the people remembers me because of the threats, but uh, uh, perhaps nobody remembers me because of uh, the men of peace I am today. But uh, I'm just doing my best. Well, I care very much about sharing that piece of you in the past 26 years today as, as much as I care about having this piece of the conversation. And I know there's a lot of misunderstanding and misconception about what it meant to be Pablo Escobar's son, because there was, again, multiple truths and contradictions, right? Absolutely. I know you had, you know, there was hamburgers delivered in helicopters and zoos with, you know, elephants and giraffes and hippos in your backyard. Mm-hmm. And it's the same time you were constantly on the run. And I read that you as a family would buy a house and then move the same day because you were on the run and they were chasing your father. So the money would go down the drain and you would go into hideouts. And there you were hiding with millions of dollars, but you couldn't get access to food because you were being surrounded and they were coming in on you. So you're living without food in isolation. And how did you experience that dichotomy, those two pieces, what do you remember about how that felt to live on the run in luxury and in fear? Well, you know, I, um, I feel grateful, you know, because of the opportunity to learn from those experiences uh, because they were so extreme at the same time, you know, a lot of luxury, but at the same time you were almost starving. So uh, in those times, and this is, I have to compare this, what you can see and how my father is being portrayed in the media and let's say the, the TV series that made uh, about him, uh, where they are, are only glorifying him, you know, and showing him that he's hiding in the best mansions you could ever imagine, but that never happened. And, and this kind of experience is the real ones, you know, because Having, let's say, $4 million in cash, but at the same time, watching, you know, that you are, you have no food, you have no freedom to buy food, but you have the cash to buy, you know, the, all the stock of food in Medellin City, that's, that's a big contradiction and that's a big lesson in life. And you have to wait for seven days until the police can move from this exactly the same place you are hiding. That's very extreme. So you can, we couldn't even turn on the lights, you know, because there was, we couldn't make any noise and we we felt in danger every single second of our lives. And sadly, these kind of situations are never shown in the TV series. So I feel thankful for the opportunities of living such uh, extreme situations because that, that also gave me the opportunity to to start asking who I want to be in in this life now that I have a second chance. You no, know? so I'm not pursuing the the dream of being a millionaire again because I had the opportunity to be one and and I almost died just because of that. So that teach me that you know money is not everything in life. Freedom is more important than money and even than life. So. I, I feel thankful for 
those kind of experiences. And I feel sad at the same time because of the victims. And this is perhaps why I started to ask for their forgiveness. And in somehow I took responsibility, at least moral responsibility for my father's sins and violent actions. Were you lonely as a child? I'm curious about basic childhood things like friendships or Mm -hmm. teachers. I know your father deeply valued education as you spoke to. So how did that work, your your life without any sort of consistency of location? So I became, you know, perhaps my friends, uh, the, the ones that I remember in my childhood, perhaps they were all my bodyguards, you know, because I have like a dozen of bodyguards and I, I don't have many memories of you know, hanging around with kids. And so I was always with like uh, living an adult life and didn't have the opportunity to share most of my time with the kids, only with adults and guns and, you know, and drugs, because all of them will, they were all uh, taking drugs and doing that kind of stuff. So I was, you know, lonely at the same time, I was receiving a lot of love from my father's side, from my mother's side, from my family's side. But uh, I wasn't living a normal life. I was forced to leave the school. I, there was a lot of people who were trying to kidnap me at the same time. So I learned that every violent action that my father, you know, every crime my father committed, it was going to be against me right away because once the, his enemies understood that Perhaps I was um, one of the parts that they could damage more to hurt my father. They started attacking me even more than my father. So I had to run faster than him and be more protected at the same time. So it was a kind of life that I, I experienced in those times. You spoke to the drugs all around you and your father was the largest drug dealer and trafficker in the world. And at one point responsible for 80% of the cocaine in the U.S. Was there points growing up in your adolescence and teenage years before his death that that you were using because it was all around you? Or how did you experience being exposed to all of the drugs that were involved? Well, uh, this... uh reminds me the, that I had a conversation with my father when I was eight years old. And he asked me to um, to sit down and to talk about drugs. He put all the drugs that were available in those times in front of me in a small table. I remember there was like 10 kind of different kinds of, of drugs, cocaine, marijuana, crack, and some other stuff. And um, he started talking about everything. You know, this is cocaine. This is marijuana. This is how it affects your mind and your body. And he started giving me uh, like a big lesson about drugs. And this is perhaps one of the reasons why I support so much education. The biggest weapon and tool at the same time to fight against the drug problem that we have in humanity and uh, how to deal with this with education, because I cannot imagine another kid like me in Colombia in, during the 80s more next to any kind of drugs available in the whole world than me. So I kept saying no, thank you very much, because of that day that my father took the time 
to speak with me and and to tell me and and to make me aware of the consequences of just trying and doing some drugs. I remember that he told me that cocaine was a poison to sell, not to try. So, you know, coming from the guy who was responsible of 80% of the drug trafficking in the whole world was, you know, something that you need to pay attention to. So I thank him for that moment, for giving me the information and also for giving me that information with love. And I, I can say, you know, he knew that I was going to live a life with a lot of temptations. And he told me that as the, only the bravest could say no to drugs. So here's this man that it would almost be easier, I would imagine, to reckon, you know, obviously if if he was aligned, right? And the values he was instilling and what he was doing in the world, that the acts of heinous heinous violence that resulted in countless senseless deaths. And he really, that wasn't just at home. It was how he showed up in the world too, because he very much was considered a Robin Hood. He was incredibly charitable and supporting families and feeding the poorest families and building homes and building soccer fields and figuring out how they could, you know, create jobs and opportunity and financial stability and, you know, also responsible for very quickly creating the murder capital of the world with the violence and the deaths. I'm curious, you know, A, I, I wonder, do you think about that piece of your father, the charitable piece, the piece that went into those neighborhoods and believe that was from his heart? Or do you believe innately that that was his agenda of power and greed and destruction to get those people behind him? Well, of course, I was trying to think about all, all of this, what happened. You know, he was called the Robin Hood of Colombia. This came from the media. And he he enjoyed that nickname or that AKA. So I know that my father was trying to help a lot of people, but I'm truly aware that all this money was full of blood. You know, there was a lot of blood behind the money he used to help the poorest people in Colombia. So we cannot forget that and forgive that because, you know, perhaps he had good intentions, but the money he was using wasn't clean at all. You know, I had the opportunity to visit my father's housing project in Medellin City. It's called Pablo Escobar Neighborhood. Of course, uh, the, the local politicians are not very happy about the name of this neighborhood and they, they try to change it for many years but the people who live there doesn't allow them to do that so when i arrived to this kind of places uh, people approached to me and they thanked me and i remember a 13 year old kid who approached to me and who said thanks to your dad i have a home and i have the possibility to study and to be someone else so it's it's very difficult to accept this kind of uh, stories. And at the same time, when you look at my father's violent side, you will see that he killed many, many people, that he put a lot of bombs and that he, he, he didn't care about the life of any politician. And he was again fighting a war against a whole government. And, you know, he's a big collector of enemies. 
How many deaths is he responsible for? Is there a ballpark number or a number that you believe to be true? I believe that the number at least, not, not, not less than 3,000 people died. Let's say in the two conflicts, you know, how many people my father killed, I really don't know exactly. So there was the good moments, you seeing this man as the Robin Hood of Colombia. But there was also, as you said, obviously, violence and bombings and death and destruction. Do you have some vivid memories about getting older, you know, into your teen years and observing that and witnessing that and knowing he was responsible? Do you do you have any stories or ways to bring some of that to life, what that was like for you? Well, you know, I should say also that in those times, my father was always, uh, let's remember that he was the most wanted man in the world in those times. But when when his enemies approached a lot to his organization and killed almost everyone, well, there was no more option, so we have to stay together. My father, he told me, hey, I cannot protect you outside, so you have to stay with me if you want to stay alive. So we had a lot of time together. We stayed like almost for, you know, the year after he escaped from La Catedral prison, we stayed together um, most of the time. And it was his, the last year of his life. So we had a lot of nights together to talk about and to discuss. And of course, every chance that I had to, to ask him to stop, to find a way to negotiate with the government and surrender again. So sadly, he missed that opportunity and the government didn't want him again alive and in a prison, uh, you know, trying to avoid scandals because it was a huge worldwide scandal when my father escaped from that prison. And it was also a luxury prison because there was a lot of jacuzzis and, you know, there was a lot of money inside that prison. So, And you were living there in the prison with him? Well, I used to visit him many, many times a week. And of course, that was more kind of a hotel than a prison. He was in charge of everything, you know. He was the boss. Even if you can speak with the director of the prison, you know, my father was giving orders to him. So when when people say, on when the journalists say that Pablo Escobar surrendered to Colombia and he went to La Catedral prison, I, I should, you know, we should rephrase that, you know, Colombia surrendered to Pablo Escobar. And you talked about the last year of his life and you having so much time with him. You were 16 when your dad died and he it was one day after his 44th birthday. Correct. Where were you when you heard that your dad had died? Well, actually I was in Bogota in a hotel. We couldn't cho- choose the, the hotel to stay. So they forced us to stay over there because they told us the only place where we, we can protect you is this hotel. So we went there. It's called Tekendama, Residencias Tekendama. That's the name of the place. And in the past 72 hours, we we tried to fly to uh, Germany and we were detained once we arrived. So the authorities, they put us back in, in into the plane against our own will because we told them, hey, if you're going to send us back to the our country, we'll you're just going to make us kill. So 
please, let us buy another plane ticket so we take uh, another plane for another different country. But they force us to go back to Colombia. So when we arrived to residence at the Kendama, I started receiving some calls from my father. And I, I felt very afraid of that because he teach me all the time that I should never use a phone because phone was truly related with death. So I didn't knew why my father started making so many calls because he was putting his own life in danger. So I realized very soon that he was trying to, you know, to allow the, his own enemies to be found. So that really worried me a lot and start, you know, I just said to him, hey, don't call anymore. We are fine. Just don't be worried for us and just protect yourself. And I hang up the phone, but he kept calling and calling and calling again. And he asked for my, to speak with my mom and my little sister, even my girlfriend in, in that time, now my wife. But, you know, I understood that he was just desperate and seeking for his own death. And so he chose the day for him, you know, the last day for him. A lot of people say that hey, we, we found him. No, Pablo Escobar allowed him uh, and the authorities to found him, his enemies to found him. And of course, a lot of people is claiming that, hey, we were the ones who killed Pablo, etc. That's not important for me, you know, who killed him or if he committed suicide or not. He's dead for me. It's my dad. And it doesn't matter if a piano fell or a truck hit him. You know, it's, uh, he's dead. That's a fact. And when did you hear that he had died? Well, I was speaking on the phone with him, saying again, you know, it was, we were just trying to give some answers to a... I received an envelope, a closed envelope from a journalist, a very well-known journalist from Colombia and from one of the biggest news magazines. So we were just trying to give the answers so they could publish them in the name of my father. And uh, he just told me, I, I will call you back. And I never received another call. And the next call that, that I received was from Gloria Congote, a journalist. She said, your father has died. And the police just confirmed that. And what did you feel at that moment, hearing that your father had either been killed or taken his own life? Well, it was pretty hard to believe because, you know, you, I was in the phone with him just 10 minutes ago. So this call confirmed that my father uh, passed away and had died. And I reacted very violently, not exactly in the right moment, because I told her, the journalist, I don't want to talk right now. And I said this like three times. You can hear that in, in the recording. But she kept asking, you know. She wanted this kind of answer, but what are you going to do? What are you going to do? What are your thoughts? Come on, just my father passed away 10 minutes ago and you're thinking about what I'm, what I'm, are my thoughts? So I told her, okay, I'm going to kill them all. And, uh, and that five, you know, seconds of threats um, forced me to live 26 years in exile. So I realized how, you know, the power of our own words, uh, the power of uh, declaration and how this could truly change your destiny. So this is why 
I learned a lot from those moments in my life. Well, you were experiencing grief and anger and you verbalize that to somebody who then is digging for that and sharing it with the world. So I'm sorry for you that you had to experience that being projected back at you for 26 years. Well, you know, this is the the consequences of um, talking too much. <laughs> and uh, But, you know, I was a, just a teenager who reacted in... Perhaps another teenager could react exactly the same. Yeah. And nobody could be worried about it because it's just a feeling and it'll pass in a moment and that, that will be all. So you're 16, you lose your father. 25,000 people attend his funeral and your life is now threatened your life has always been threatened. <laughs> Nothing's new. Um, I wanted to believe that today is not. That's true. That's true. Mm. I, I should say up until that point. <laughs> Essentially what happens in the aftermath, as I understand, is that you negotiate with the Cali cartel to avoid being killed. And what that means is leaving the country. They understand all the assets, the war booty, everything. And that is taken and you start from zero and you leave Colombia to go to Argentina. Is that correct? Yes, that is correct. But I, I should say another thing that my mother was the one who negotiated with the cartels about my own life. And the first meetings, uh, they told her that they were going to kill me. You know, they, they said to her, don't worry about your, your own personal life and your little daughter's life, but we're going to kill your son. So, of course, she fought a lot and she told them, hey, what kind of peace are we making if you're going to kill my own son? So I was forced to visit them. Um, and first I went to a prison in Bogota. So this guy told me that I had to go to that meeting, that the new buses were the Cali cartel and, and that probably I was going to be killed during the meeting. So I said to this guy, who's going to join a meeting who already knows that it's going to be killed over there. That's against my own survival instincts. And five seconds after, a, a guy that I never knew in my life approached to me and he said, you don't understand what's going on. And I said, yes, I understand. They want to kill me during the meeting. And he said to me, no, you are already dead. And the only chance you have to survive is being sharp in that meeting. So go there because uh, everybody here is tired of seeing so much blood. And this is your only opportunity, your only chance to save your life. You are already dead. And the only chance you have to save it is going to that meeting. So... I said to this guy, that makes a lot of sense. Thank you for saying me uh, and not using a bad language to explain to me the situation. So please arrange the meeting for me. And I took the decision. I wrote my own will. I was 16 and I was willing to die, you know, because I understood that I was already dead. And and I said to myself, okay, if, if this is going to be the end, okay, let's do it. And let's, let's put an end to this suffering and I don't want to run away from the sins that I never committed, you know, but I want to, I, I'm just tired of running away from 
the crimes that I never committed. So. And you get out of Colombia. You start from zero, your mom and sister. What point do you change your name and tell the story of how you chose your name, Sebastian, which you go by today? Okay. Well, the story of, uh, I legally changed, we legally changed our identities in the family because there was no airports, there was no airlines in the whole world and no country that could be open to receive us. So in my case and in my family case, we visited every embassy in Colombia and we couldn't find any support. We also asked for the support of the Vatican, the United Nations, the Red Cross, a lot of people, and nobody could help us. So there was no opportunity, no chance for us, no future. And our lawyer said to us, hey, there's a very, very old law in Colombia that allow any citizen to correct or to change their own names if they appear with some mistakes in their documents or whatever. So we used the law to legally change our identities with the help of some of the authorities, just to keep the secret of the legal change of our identity. And that gave us the opportunity to fly away. So we escaped and we took the decision in that moment to fly to Argentina. And here we are 26 years ago. And I know you chose your name out of a phone book. Is that correct? Yeah, that's that's correct. Because you know, imagine if I ask you, okay, how, how do you want to be called for the next years of your life? And I give you 10 minutes for that. What name would, will you choose? You know, your mind just go, you don't see anything. You don't see opportunities. You don't see names. You don't remember anything. So you need the help of a phone book just to check some last names and names and so I kept the Juan, you know, I'm, my original name is Juan Pablo and my new identity is Juan Sebastian. Why we did that is because if we made a mistake, uh, let's say in a border, crossing a border and somebody of my family called me Juan, well, that, everything will be all right because I, I still have the Juan uh, in, in first, uh, as a first name. It's interesting because... You know, my next question was going to be about how you begin to separate your identity from your father and who you are as a man, as an individual person outside of your father's identity and your father's sins. And so from what I'm hearing you say, you know, all of this, you know, certainly changing the name because you were his namesake is a piece of that. But what is the process of separating your identity from your father's identity, which I imagine is ongoing and has been a lifetime of work for you? Well, it's a very hard process because it's, it's very difficult to be recognized as an individual. And, and as I told you earlier, you know, nothing grows under a big shadow. And um, for me, I had to reinvent myself. And And today I can say that after 26 years of his death, a lot of people now, they they truly respect me. They know that I'm a good guy. I had several opportunities to be like Pablo Escobar 2.0, and I never took it because I truly believe that there's no future in in those uh, careers. I, I see only jail or the cemetery. So... I truly believe that there there should be another option for me in my life. 
and I'm trying to build my own identity. And of course, at the same time, I have to face my own story. Uh, we only manage to keep a low profile life for the first, let's say, the, the first five years of our new identities, living the privilege of being nobody. And that gave us the opportunity to study, to make some friends. But suddenly, you know, the last name, our own family stories start pursuing us again. doesn't matter if you Google me, you know, using the name Juan Pablo or Sebastian Marroquin, you will find exactly the same information. I want to talk about your path to forgiveness and reconciliation and as you said, your identity is disclosed. I imagine a lot of things you could have not anticipated, including the Google search bar that, you know, anyone could find you and mm-hmm. Narcos, which we'll talk about the Netflix <laughs> series that was incredibly popular and still is. Once your identity is revealed, you decide to go on a path of forgiveness, which you documented in a, a film, an award, you know, acclaimed documentary, which we will link to. Why did you decide to go out on that path? And tell me about some of the first conversations you had with the children of the victims of your father. Well, you know, I always felt that I should found a way to approach to my father's victims. I I don't know, uh, it's unexplainable, but I just felt responsible in a way for the harm they receive and for the violence they suffered. So the documentary gave me the opportunity to wrote a letter for them. We didn't know what kind of answer we will receive from them. A lot of people told me, you're crazy. What are you doing? You know, it's like this never happened and this will never happen in Colombia. And nobody talks about forgiveness and reconciliation. What you know, they, they didn't even know the words, uh, just a way of saying that, you know, because, you know, most of the things were solved in Colombia with guns, not with words. And I was totally, you know, you know, it's like, wow, surprised because of the, their reaction, their positive reaction. Once they read my letter and they said, this guy is just looking and asking for peace and this is the only thing he wants. So we need to do something uh, and to answer the letter he wrote to us. And one of the sons of the Minister of Justice, who was killed by my father's orders in the year 1984, decided to take a plane and come to Buenos Aires to visit me. And and I was, uh, you know, excited and worried and I feel afraid and I feel a different mix of feelings, you know, just because of thinking about the possibility of meeting such an important part of the family. You know, I can tell you that perhaps the first man who died in Colombia because it was the first one who dared to face my father was this guy's father. But we just put our hearts and let our hearts speak for, for us. And this is how we get to to give us a hug and it naturally happened. And it was considered a historical hug in Colombia after that, because nobody ever thought that such a thing could happen. And I met his brothers too. And I, I had similar, um, let's say reconciliation process with them. And with one of them, with Jorge Lara, 
one of his brothers. We became very close friends and we even go today, we're working together and we gave speeches, lectures to to the gangs in Colombia to show them that there's no purpose behind violence and uh, avenging our own father's death. There's no way out of this that we should find a way to forgive and not to forget. You know, we are not inviting people to forget. Forgiveness is not about forgetting things. It's about healing. It's about moving forward. It's about having memories of what happened in those times, but being aware of the consequences of repeating these stories. So since the moment that, that I started, you know, talking with my father's victims, that never stopped. And I can tell you that today I, I have seen like 150 families so far, all of them direct victims of my father's violence. And the success rate in the forgiveness and reconciliation process, thank God, is uh, 100%. Wow. So far, I, I cannot tell you about an, a negative experience. And I think we all need to forgive. It's very important for our own health. It's a way to let go, you know, the pain, because the pain will stay there inside of you and will make you feel sick and will truly make you feel sick. And uh, so this is a way of healing for us, for every family to learn from the past and to move forward from from that past and to turn the page and, you know, look from a different perspective. I was declared ambassador of peace for the World Organization for Peace. So a lot of good things start to happen to me. And, and I'm just, you know, trying to see everything in a positive way and um, learning from that. And that's something that really brings me a lot of hope and makes me continue in this path. Well, you think of the loss of life and destruction had the generational sins and the generational story lived on and, and they didn't, but instead you came together in the opposite in peace. And I imagine all of the meetings, you know, which as you said, in the hundreds now, Painful, very painful meetings, as you can imagine. I imagine deeply painful and ultimately very healing and cathartic for everyone involved. There was a ripple effect with your father's destruction, but certainly a ripple effect with your work and peace and forgiveness. So I applaud you for that. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, we are just doing this, you know, because it's, it's the right thing to do. And this is why we're doing this. And I don't want to leave my son, you know, I don't want to leave my son the same past that I inherited from my father. You know, I'm, I truly love my son. So this is why I'm trying just to rebuild a different kind of future for him, for him as a grandson. And we talked about, you know, here you are, and obviously we're talking about your, your father, but you are your own man, your individual man, your husband and a father and an architect and a speaker and a peace advocate and narcos happens. Mm -hmm. And if there and is then a, narcos. and then narcos. And so mm -hmm. if you feel like you have some amount of privacy or time has passed, <laughs> the world and the global curiosity about you, your father, your family, 
your story. It's as if someone, I am sure, has, again, put a massive highlighter over you and your childhood. It's probably informed people or misinformed people more than the history books, in a sense, because my guess is more people watch Narcos than read history books about your father. Sadly, sadly. And I'm interested in your experience watching it. And if you can highlight for us some of the biggest misrepresentations or misconceptions, because a lot of people experience that is the truth of your life and your father's life. So where did they go wrong or where did they take creative license to share a story that isn't based in fact? Well, um, as I told you from the beginning, we are always trying to find the positive things out of the negative ones. And so that's, um, that's a fact that, you know, suddenly uh, nobody remembered my father, but because of the TV series they made about him, you know, it's like uh, the new generations start to know my father even better than, than the previous ones. So thanks to this situation, I start to receive several invitation letters from different parts of the world just to speak about my own story, the true story behind uh, the narcos, etc. But uh, they, they truly never respect some very important facts, and that forced me to take the opportunity to write an article about them. And I just wrote an article that about the 28 mistakes of the second season. I never wrote the article, and it's pending to write the, about this, the first one, the first season, mistakes. And, um, you know, the, it, was, it became so popular, this article. I, I don't know how, but I just published, let's say, during Friday, and, you know, in, during Sunday, there were 3 million people already read the article and it was published in India, you know, translated in many languages. So I was, wow, what's going on? This is huge. This is something that I never expected. I know that they were making an entertainment product and they succeeded with that. It caused a lot of impact in the world. And it became like in the second most seen TV series on the platform, so that really went very well. And at the same time, gave me the opportunity to speak to the world, you know, on behalf of my family and my dad and my experience. But sadly, the thing that I don't like is that I'm trying to approach to a lot of teenagers in the world to just to invite them not to follow my father's examples. So I can speak, let's say, the biggest audience I had in a, in a single lecture was 6,000 teenagers in Mexico, uh, in the most violent city of Mexico in that time, uh, two years ago. Uh, but at the same time, you know, in an hour, Netflix was telling the wrong stories and inspiring in the wrong way to millions of them. So that's sad. Yeah, and I know that the thing that really got you was that the work you're doing to reconcile and create peace and actually glorified and made the whole thing very sexy as opposed to painting a realistic picture of what it looked like. And, you know, they had the cheeseburger flying in. I don't know if that was in it, but not the being trapped in a house with no food for that. That's yeah. what that life looks like as well. So I think that's... Yeah, you cannot see that kind of scenes during the, the series, sadly. 
But if you show Pablo Escobar hiding in the biggest and the best mansions, seven-star hotels, who doesn't want to be like him? And if you see him, you know, throwing to the fireplace $2 million in cash because supposedly my little sister is cold, come on, come on. That's only, that only happens in Hollywood, you know, it's uh, never happened in our lives. But of course, it's a very good way to glorify my father and to show how powerful he was and how much money he had. They are portraying him like a success case. You know, that's the problem. And my father, at least from my perspective, couldn't be considered a success case. Why is that? You know, because he died and he had, you know, 44 years old and he, he missed all of the most important moments in his family. He never enjoyed his fortune at all. So how could you consider Pablo Escobar as a success case? Are you at peace with your childhood today? Totally, you know, and, and, and let me tell you why. Because I had the opportunity to speak about all of this, all of the suffering directly with my father when he was alive. You know, there's nothing left to talk about with him. When I have him in front of me, alive, I told him everything, you know, every feeling. I was totally open with him and straight and direct because he was surrounded by a bunch of men who was applauding his actions. And I, I was perhaps, me and my mother, the only ones against that. I want to ask about your mom. We haven't talked about her. What is your relationship with your mom and your understanding of, of her role in your father's work and, and how you experienced that? Well, um, I, I will just try to tell you. I gave her a gift, you know, a poster of, a, of my documentary, Sins of My Father, and I just wrote a simple dedication to her. And I, I wrote to my master of, of forgiveness. You know, I learned that from her. She was always trying to do good, even with the evil that we have around our own house. So I learned that from her. She teach me how to behave, how to be a good man, how to forgive, and that everybody needed and wanted a second chance in their lives. And of course, she suffered a different kind of stigmas and things like that. And uh, I encouraged her to wrote her own memoirs. I was totally surprised. And uh, that, that book changed the way I feel about my father today because she confessed a lot of situations that I wasn't aware of. So I won't spoil the, the, the end of that book, but uh, I can tell you that truly changed the way I feel about my father today. In a good way or a bad way? In a bad way, sadly, in a bad way. I thought that I had a better father. Sebastian, what is the question you're most often asked? Where's the money? <laughs> <laughs> and and I, I totally, I'm totally open to answer that question. You know, Where's I, the I money, Sebastian? <laughs> okay. <laughs> there you go again. <laughs> of course, I, I, I asked uh, the question myself, you know, what's the money? You know, there was so much money. But uh, when, when you are so close, you know where, where the money is. Uh, and we need to remember that just to, we, we need to pay for our lives. And we gave everything to the cartels who kept uh, everything for them and who were in charge in that moment in Colombia. So 
they told us, if you hide one coin, we will kill you. So there was no possibility to hide a single coin. And we understood, and there was also no warranties that they were going to respect our own lives after we gave them the money and the goods. And, and I mean, airplanes, helicopters, motorcycles, work of art, apartments, lots, everything you can imagine. We gave everything just to save our lives. And I can say this from the bottom of my heart that I thank the enemies of my father for robbing all of the what inherited from him because that truly gave us the opportunity to start over again. So I looked at that in a very positive perspective that made me a stronger man, a better man. So I thank them for that, just for taking the money. If you had an opportunity to speak to your father one last time, what would you say to him? I don't know, but if he's listening to me, he knows that I love him very much. And that would be the only thing that I would say to him. I love you. That's the only thing I, I, I need to say to him. Because when we were alive, uh, I demonstrate him that I was willing to give my life for him, even if I was against his own behavior. You know, so as a son, I was totally loyal to him. And I'm paying the price for that. That's why I cannot live in my country, why I cannot dream about that possibility, because I was loyal to him, even if I was against his own behavior and and I wasn't supporting him at all during his violence process and, and situations. But I stayed with him. I never betrayed him. So that's the only thing left to say, I love you. Yeah. As a journalist, I covered a fair amount of murder trials and met with the families of the perpetrators, and in particular, a lot of mothers who still loved their children and loved their son and were, you know, shamed for that, were judged for that, in some cases felt guilty about that. But it is the love of a mother and a child. It's a love of a father and a son. And it's clear to me that you do love him and that you not only are on this path of forgiveness for your son, but that you've also forgiven your father, which is clearly very healing to you and your family. Yeah, and you know, I, I don't have the power to forgive him, you know, because I'm not God. He's, I think that's God's job. And uh, it's not my, uh, my job to judge him. Yeah. That's, uh, um, that's very hard to judge somebody who only gave you love, but at the same time, love doesn't make me blind. And of course, I am allowed to see his crimes and, and his damage to society. So that's why I'm asking for their forgiveness. And at the same time, I feel love for him. And I respect him because he gave me the life that I have. And he gave me the tools and the strength and the possibility to reinvent myself and to be someone else far away from his shadow. What do you hope people take away from your story, Sebastian? Peace. What's more important than peace? Well, thank you from Argentina all the way to California. You have lived an extraordinary life, and I just appreciate your trust in me to play a part in sharing your story. And I know that everyone listening is going to learn something new about you So thank you for that. And I hope people really do 
learn most importantly about where you are in your life today and your life's work of forgiveness? Many, many thanks to you, Kimmy, for your support, for uh, your great job as a journalist. And you did a lot of homework. You, you truly know my story. And thank you for your questions. And also for questioning me and, and my own story to, and to help me learn even more about that. You're welcome. So I end with something fun called rapid fire. And I'm just going to fire off a question or maybe a statement. You can drop in the answer for me. So you ready? You game? Okay. <clears throat> All right. Favorite city? Uh, Medellin. Biggest pet peeve or the thing that annoys you most about people if you are annoyed? People who's not loyal. Top thing on your bucket list? Peace. Forgiveness is? Healing. Greatest hope for your son? Life, health, future. Thank you again, Sebastian. And it is, I should say, very late where you are. We heard the buzz of the city of Buenos Aires. And <laughs> with the time change and all the traffic, we, you had to do this very late at night to make this all work. So I hope you get a good night's sleep. And I'm really excited to share this with the audience and grateful to have met you. Thank you. Thank you very much for your support. And it was a truly a great pleasure to have this conversation with you. Okay. Take care. Take care. Thank you very much. All the best. Today's interview supports the UNHCR, which stands for the UN Refugees Agency. Their mission is to ensure that everyone has the right to seek asylum and find a safe place in another state, and that refugees have the option to eventually return home, integrate, and resettle. Their services are vast and include everything from emergency assistance to clean water, sanitation, health care, and blankets. With the goal of returning to home, they provide transportation, care packages, and most importantly, income-generating projects. You can learn more about their work at unhcr.org. If you found today's conversation with Sebastian remotely as fascinating or inspiring as I did, I hope you will consider sharing it. By simply clicking share on your phone, you can help Sebastian and all the wiser reach more engaged listeners. Have a great day and be sure to check out our show notes for Sebastian's book and documentary. All the Wiser is produced by Erica Gerard at Podkit Productions. Our sound engineer is Kelly Kramerick, and our associate producer is Kessie Hollister. Thanks for being a part of the All the Wiser podcast. You can subscribe to the podcast, read our show notes, or get in touch with us at allthewiserpodcast.com. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at All the Wiser Podcast. Send us a note. We would love to hear from you. And as always, thanks for listening. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. 
Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.